0: And now the Federal Drive with Tom Temin.
1: Hello, and thanks for joining us on this Thursday, November second, twenty twenty-three, seven minutes past the hour. I'm Tom Temin. Our producers are Eric White and Peter Masurlian. Our digital editors, Daisy Thornton and Darius Lauderdale. Coming up in this hour of the Federal Drive, talk about a sting. This law enforcement operation netted one thousand arrests. Plus, an experienced hand is guiding the Federal Labor Relations Authority. Those stories much more ahead during this hour of The Federal Drive. But first, the colors of money strategy Congress and the Pentagon use to plan and execute the defense budget works fairly well for big weapons systems. But colors make almost no sense for software and most other kinds of information technology. If software is never really finished, it doesn't really have an R&D phase or a sustainment phase. Navy officials say they've seen some big successes, though, with a pilot program that lets them use a single color of money for software. They want Congress to expand that authority. But as Federal News Network's Jared Serbu reports, quantifying those successes, that's not so easy.
2: It's called the Software and Digital Technology Pilot Program, sometimes known as Budget Activity 8, or BA-8. It's only been around for three years now, but that single color of money is a dramatic departure from the way the military has been buying software systems for decades. You
3: know, you have money set aside for doing development, you have money set aside for doing operations, money set aside for doing procurements, and very tight constraints on what you can do in each of those aspects. You've developed it, and then it's in sustainment for the rest of time.
2: That's Captain David Gast, the Navy's program manager for command and control systems. He has several of those more traditionally funded programs in his portfolio. And then there's MTC-2, Maritime Tactical Command and Control. It's a tool that helps the Navy automate and centralize the planning that goes into its ship movements, and it's one of the two Navy programs using BA eight. The current iteration is relatively new, and from its inception, officials wanted to build and improve it throughout its entire life cycle, with agile DevSecOps methodologies.
3: We knew we needed to break the sort of large, complex piece of software down into smaller chunks that would allow us to iterate on each piece of the software individually. And B8 is really perfect For doing that.
2: Perfect because program officials don't have to worry about finishing all of their major software development work using one kind of appropriation, then figuring out how much of another kind of appropriation they might need to deploy it to ships and an entirely different budget line to sustain the system once it's in the field. All three things can happen at once and continuously for as long as MTC2 is in the fleet. GAS says that funding flexibility has let the program move at lightning speed by traditional DOD IT standards. It's rolled out to 15 ships since January, and in that same time, there have been five new versions of the software – Developers are adding new features all the time. He says new capabilities can be developed in as little as a month, and they could be sent to ships over the air because the containerized system is modular enough to incorporate incremental upgrades without a major overhaul.
3: The first instance that we put on a ship was 35 containers. Now, about six months later, we're up to over 40, and that number will just keep going up because rather than having to go back into the code base and make changes in there uh, to make it talk to other things, you just bring a separate piece of code, and each of them does run independently. So back to your question, yes, absolutely. If one container crashes, for instance, the whole application doesn't crash, it's just that one container. If one feature of MTC2 crashes for some reason, all the rest of the pieces of it will still continue to work in exactly the same way.
2: The Navy says it's seen many of the same benefits in its other BA8 program called Risk Management Information. RMI is used to track safety incidents across the fleet. It's also been able to get new software releases out to the field at a pace that's almost unheard of in the world of DoD acquisition about every three weeks. Christine Lemaire, the program manager for Naval Applications and Business Services, says B A eight has also let the program pivot right away when priorities change, rather than waiting another year for the specific color of money officials need to meet those priorities.
4: For example, in fiscal year 22, we were projected to be 70 percent sustainment and 30 percent development just based on, you know, what we had. However, because with the B8 line you can quickly pivot the changing customer priorities effectively reversed the funding percentages, resulting in 67% of our budget spent on development and 33% on sustainment requirements. B8 uh, eliminated the need to reprogram RMI's appropriation dollars to support our, our stakeholders, you know, changing requirements. So it allowed us uh, to continue our agile development process in a very fast manner.
2: Like Gast, Lemaire has a lot of programs in her portfolio that use DOD's traditional funding model with separate colors of money, 21 to be exact. She says the difference in managing a traditional one compared to RMI is pretty striking.
4: Traditionally, we are spending you know, quite a bit of time doing several budget exhibits. I would love to have my most of my Agile programs on here. I'll give a prime example. Back in June, we did a real live user story on RMI. All the customers were in the room. We went through all their feedbacks. I need you to pivot here. I need you to add a different dialogue box here. In my traditional programs, uh, that's a development um, initiative. So I would have to wait if I was out of rdt to twenty four, we didn't. We were able to get some of those feedbacks that the customers needed and wanted within the next sprint cycle. It's immediate. Let's say from a comparison, I have two million in RDTNE, and I have to use that for developmental activities. So if I get a cut of a million dollars, I may have to wait, you know, two years before I can get that capability out. If I'm cut in a, in a B8 uh, program, 5%, 10%, I can sometimes look for efficiencies in other areas. I don't have to wait for additional rdt It's colorless. I can
2: still move. It is difficult to gauge exactly how effective the colorless money model would be if it were applied to the entire world of DoD IT acquisition, but there's a broad consensus among budget and acquisition experts that it's essential in the world of modern agile software development. That idea started to become mainstream in 2019 when the Defense Innovation Board found in an influential report on DoD software acquisition that DoD's various colors of money routinely doom software projects across the department. But so far, the B-A-8 pilots represent just a tiny fraction of the Navy and DOD's software acquisition portfolio. Besides the two that congressional appropriators have authorized for the Navy, there are only six others across the entire Department of Defense. Russell Rumbaugh is the Assistant Secretary of the Navy for Financial Management.
5: Two very small programs. Here's the Department of the Navy proving to those people who are responsible for overseeing us that we can be trusted with these authorities. Guess what? They are both on time, on schedule. Uh, They always like to push back on me. They don't promise to come under budget because with these flexibilities, they're (laughs) going to make sure they spend every dollar they can. But they get to immediately extrapolate. Do we need to expand uh, MTC to more ships or do we need to develop a new uh, function? They can do it all at once. Here is a great opportunity to earn the trust for ever more flexibility which we then turn into ever better results.
2: However, congressional appropriators have told DOD exactly how to earn that trust. Lawmakers want to see hard metrics. The Pentagon's been asking for permission to add more pilots to the BA-8 program, and for several consecutive years, the Appropriations Committees have said they're unwilling to do that until DOD and the military services start producing regular reports that compare the performance of their existing BA-8 programs against eight other programs that use traditional funding models. We also asked the Navy for some hard data to prove that BA-8 works better than the traditional system, and officials weren't able to share any with us either. Jared Serbu, Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News
1: Network. Check out Jared's story at federalnewsnetwork.com. Still to come, why the Federal Labor Relations Authority might be headed to layoffs and furloughs. This is the Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Welcome back to the Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Network. Few people in government have more experience in federal labor relations and employee issues than my next guest. For the past year, she's been chairman of the Federal Labor Relations Authority. She's also someone I've known and interviewed several times over the years. For an update on FLRA and a few other things, Susan sway Grundman joins me now. Susan, good to have you back.
6: Tom, great to be with you again.
1: And the FLRA, now you've been there about a year, and just because I know some of the other jobs you've had earlier... Is chairman of the FLRA kind of a divided job? That is, do you have administrative duties for the operations of the uh, apparatus supporting the board, or do you get to spend all your time on cases?
6: You're absolutely right. My workload essentially doubled from being a member to the chairman. You know, it's all hands on deck. Everybody plays. We've got a great staff, very supportive, very intelligent, and a lot of institutional memory. So it's a good place to be at a good time
1: but it's not a good place in terms of the budget allocation from congress which is starting to cause some problems.
6: You nailed it. So, here's where we are. The proposed funding levels for 2024 range from 28 million to 29.4 million. So using the high mark, 29.4, that's still $200,000 lower than we were 2 decades ago. Now, factor in inflation. Since 2004, and you can pick your inflation rate, but the bottom line is while our funding once sustained 213 employees on staff, today that number only supports 112. That's almost half of our staffing levels for the last 20 years, and yet the mission itself has not changed. If anything, the work has expanded with rising unionization in the federal sector, a sharp spike in filings in our Office of General Counsel, up almost 60% in the last two years, and increasing demands for more tools and assistance to facilitate resolution of labor disputes. We are busier than ever, and yet we're at a 20-year low in funding.
1: That's kind of surprising because there's a lot of members of Congress and certainly the current administration has been full-throated in their support for unionizing, whether the federal or the private sector workforce.
6: You're right. But you know, compare us to other agencies, and not just any agency, but specifically those that address workers' protections in both the private and public sectors. The MSPB, the OSC, FMCS, NLRB, the National Labor Relations Board, the National Mediation Board, They've all seen an increase over the last 20 years, ranging from a 20% bump to over a 100% bump. The FLRA is the only, the only agency in the negative column. And note that our sister agency, the NLRB, was flat funded for 10 years, but we've been so for double that time. And you and I, we all understand that we live in times of fiscal austerity and that flat funding is a reality, but with inflation and an anticipated cost of living increase, there's just no more meat left on the bone.
1: And what effect has this had, do you think, so far?
6: Well, if nothing changes in the proposed funding that we're seeing, like many agencies, 80% of our funding in any given year goes directly to support our people, our staff, salaries, and benefits. The remaining 20% indirectly supports our staff. Infrastructure, IT, rent, worst case scenario what we once thought was a mere possibility may now be the eventuality we're talking furloughs beginning as early as next year furloughs are the same people who process the cases investigate the charges mediate litigate these matters and issue decisions they will be sent home for periods of time and that directly impacts when and how long disputes will linger government-wide It will have a ripple effect, not just on our agency, but on every agency and its unions that bring their concerns before us. Now, we've had a little experience in this area, so if you don't mind, I'd like to share it. They say that justice delayed is justice denied. With over four years without a general counsel, we had a number of ULPs. So as a result, when an acting GC, Charlotte A. Dye, was appointed in 2021, she had almost 500 cases waiting for her on day one of her job. In some of those cases, the parties and potential witnesses had moved on. And in one particular case, a party died. And while Ms. Dye and our amazing regional offices were able to clear the backlog with cases now scheduled well into next year, keep in mind that they're still dealing with cases coming in with almost 60% increase. So, as she has said before, it's like trying to tread water while you are drowning.
1: We're speaking with Susan Sway Grundman, chairman of the Federal Labor Relations Authority. And just to clarify something you said earlier, is it in fact down to 112 employees from 213?
6: Correct, yes.
1: Okay. And maybe just help us understand the nature of the cases when you were at the Merit Systems Protection Board and later at the Office of Congressional Workplace Rights. Those were individuals that had a grievance with another individual or maybe with the hierarchy of their agency. In the case of the FLRA, is it always a bargaining unit versus the government, or do individuals have issues there also?
6: That's a great question. You're right in that we see individual cases at OCWR and at MSPB. Here, generally, it's unions and agencies. Occasionally, we will see an individual, but we are here to adjudicate the issues between agencies and unions and their bargaining disputes or their lack of bargaining disputes. It's a different dynamic. Also, in comparing MSPB, there are a number of statutes that generally come into play. At the FLRA, basically, it's one. And that's the Federal Service Labor Management Relations Statute.
1: So it's a little simpler maybe in some sense.
6: It's not any simpler. It's just as complex. But all the disputes generally focus on that one statute.
1: And how has the workload been? I know during the Trump administration, there were some major issues that I think it was the VA and the American Federation of Government Employees. And there was a big dispute that went on for some time over like 15 or 16 of the clauses in a big agreement. But that all got resolved, and I guess there's a new makeup to the board, of course, because that changes when the administration changes. So, with all the moonlight and roses expressed by the administration between itself and the big unions, shouldn't the workload be going down now?
6: The workload is always high, disputes are always there. As much as parties try and resolve their own issues, that's where we exist. And let me take a moment just to kind of dispel a myth that might be out there. Some people may perceive us to be at the end of the process, that we don't enter the picture until the parties cannot reach an agreement. But in reality, we are there throughout the process. We're there in the beginning to educate the parties on their rights and protections under the law. You will see videos on our website. We're on YouTube. We just released a five-part series on collective bargaining in the federal sector, our version of streaming, and it's received record numbers of hits. We're also there in the middle. We offer mediation services, facilitation services through all three of our components, the Office of General Counsel, the Federal Services Impasses Panel, and the authority. And the resolution rate for most of these cases is extremely high. And then finally, of course, we're at the end of the process with the issuance of the decision. But one of the things we want to do is to give the parties tools to not only resolve their current dispute, but to Resolve disputes in the future.
1: And how do you ensure that the two sides, let's say management and the unions, perceive the FLRA as impartial, as a referee, and someone whose judgments are according to what the statutes say, as opposed to pro-labor or anti-labor?
6: I think the parties who come to us understand what our role is, that it is an independent, quasi-judicial, neutral And that comes through not only through our adjudication process, but through mediation as well. We don't take a side.
5: And
1: getting back to the budget issue, you have been to Capitol Hill to talk about this. What do they say? What's their answer when you show them these numbers that the buying power is 50% of what it was two decades ago?
6: We understand these are times of fiscal austerity. And the other agencies also understand it as well. But we're the only agency... That is funded not only at a lower level below the rate of inflation, but lower than the actual dollar amount funded at 20 years ago. So, come on, Tom, let's do the math. What if you were paid at a rate less than you received two decades ago? What would you do?
1: I would leave, but you know, you can't. The FLRA needs to exist because it's statutory. So, that's why I'm just curious as to what the members say when confronted with this information.
6: Exactly. And I think the message that we've borne is that this just isn't a union issue. It's not a management issue. It's a good government issue when the parties are deprived of an efficient means to resolve their disputes.
1: And another question I had, given the workload that you say that is steady regardless of who's in the White House or whatever, are there any recurring patterns that if the unions could see them or if management could see them, they would know how to head them off in the first place? Are there things that come up over and over again?
6: The issues change over time. In the beginning, and this is before I arrived at the authority, the issues were going into remote work. Now the issues have come to returning from the remote workplace and expanding telework. So the issues will morph over time, and there will always be changes. The core to our work is always the right to bargain, and we understand that in our preamble itself, in the beginning, that labor organizations and collective bargaining are in the public interest. And that is central and core to our mission.
1: And just a final question, a little bit of a wild card, because you have experience in the private labor market as well as an attorney and involved in some private sector unions. Do you think the fact that federal unions cannot bargain over wages and financial benefits, does that help focus them on issues that really matter to the mission somewhat more. Maybe it's better that they don't bargain over money.
6: That's a good way to look at it. The act itself is a delicate balancing act. On the one hand, you have a very strong management's rights clause unions cannot strike, there's no self help, and there's no closed shop. But on the other hand, under our statute, union officials get official time, and central to the statute the ability to grieve, to arbitrate, and to appeal. So it is that balancing act, and it does work out. Tom, let me go back to another point. We understand that funding is a privilege. We believe that we earn that privilege every day. But the bottom line is that at the current funding levels are unsustainable, not just at a lower level but below the inflation rate, which was an actual dollar amount we received 20 years ago. And you've asked a lot of good questions, not just today, but over the years. So here's one for you. Does this funding level send a message? Not just a message to our employees who work tirelessly, not doing the work more for less, but for less and less and less. Is the message to a larger community that labor management relations between agencies, their unions, and the employees the unions represent, are these relationships less significant, less substantial, less worthy of a fundamental investment.
1: Susan Sway Grunman is the chairman of the Federal Labor Relations Authority. As always, thanks so much for joining me.
6: Thank you for letting us tell our story.
1: And we'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Subscribe to The Federal Drive wherever you get your podcasts. Still to come, a dispute over government audit rights in hybrid contracts. But first, talk about a sting. This law enforcement operation netted 1,000 arrests. This is The Federal Drive with Tom Tamman here on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Welcome back to The Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Network. Imagine an operation in which 10,000 law enforcement people worldwide arrested 1,000 organized violent criminals. Well, that's what happened in 2021 in an operation known as Trojan Shield. A Justice Department team led that effort. Team leaders have won this year's Service to America Medal for Safety, Security, and International Affairs. One of them, Assistant U.S. Attorney for the Southern District of California, Josh Miller, joins me now. Mr. Miller, good to have you with us.
7: Great to be here. Thank you so much, Tom.
1: And my first question is, how could you possibly corral 10,000 people in law enforcement worldwide to bear on this? What kind of effort did that take?
7: Yeah, so there was a lot of coordination. We had built up relationships over about 18 months, two years. And yeah, try to get 10 versus 10,000 people involved was really kind of a huge effort. But that involved weeks and weeks of coordination and making sure that everybody understood the strategy, the timeline, and the goals of the investigation.
1: Okay, and let's get to the investigation itself, Operation Trojan Shield. That could be a lot of things. What was the goal here, and what was the whole effort all about?
7: So the goal of the investigation was to collect evidence against criminal users, drug traffickers, money launderers, people involved in violent acts or organized criminal groups. It was to collect evidence to use against them to prosecute them for their crimes.
1: Was this primarily in the Western Hemisphere and the nations that we commonly think of in South America and Central America as the source for a lot of this, cartel-type people?
7: So a lot of the users were in Australia, New Zealand, South America, and Europe. Those are the primary users who were in those countries.
1: So really all over the world, in other words?
7: Yes, it's a worldwide operation.
1: But these types of things happen all the time. There's illegal drug, there's illegal human trafficking, and on and on. What about Trojan Shield? What was the unifying principle here? Why these thousand among probably 10,000 you could have arrested?
7: Yeah, these individuals were usually the, the distributors, the leaders, individuals that were committing the most violence. And so those were the individuals that were focused on both on the United States and then also on other countries that we worked with.
1: And... I want to ask about the security, both of the data and of the fact of the operation going on, and the fact that not every nation has the same approach to corruption and bribery as the United States does, ideally. How did you keep that all under control with, again, multiple nations and multiple bureaus and law enforcement agencies?
7: That was one of the more challenging aspects of the investigation because we knew that to be successful in this operation, we had to share information, we had to share data. So we started out with just a few countries that the United States has very strong relationships with and then branched out from there. But towards the end, we just had to kind of take that leap of faith and uh, work with countries that may not have the same you know, commitment to uh, public safety and to derailing public corruption. But in the end, we knew that we had to share data in order to be successful.
1: And the arrests then took place in multiple nations eventually?
7: Yeah. So the the big takedown, which was called Joint Action Day, was on June 7th, 2021. It involved over 10,000 law enforcement officers throughout the world, Australia, New Zealand and Europe.
1: In the investigation stage, how did that work? Was it primarily database work or did you have a combination of data types of techniques and also people, you know, human intelligence and, and snitches and so forth, informants on the streets?
7: Yeah, so, uh, each country worked a little bit different, but there were confidential human sources that were involved throughout the operation. And you had other individuals, it was data driven, but we were obtaining information on a regular basis on drug shipments, on violent acts, on other criminal endeavors that were, that were taking place. And so. You know, depending on the situation, obviously violent acts, we had to minimize any threats to life. And then drug seizures, we had to analyze the data and, and make the seizure if, if we needed to.
1: We're speaking with Josh Meller. He is Assistant U.S. Attorney for the Southern District of California, and along with two people from the FBI, a winner of this year's Service to America Medal for Safety, Security, and International Affairs. And just tell us about some of the assets from the United States. I mean, there were at least two big units of the Justice Department involved. What kind of deployment did it take from just U.S. assets?
7: So primarily it was the Department of Justice, the U.S. Attorney's Office for the Southern District of California, and the Federal Bureau of Investigation, San Diego branch. And while there's just myself and there are several other assistant U.S. attorneys that were involved, and then you had the primary case agents, but you had over 100 FBI agents that uh, came from other parts of the United States to come and assist with reviewing messages, analyzing messages and putting that information in a place, in a format to be understood and shared with our foreign partners.
1: And to what extent does the U.S. attorney function then inform the FBI as to what kind of evidence will be needed that eventually you can use and hold up in court when you do the prosecution piece after the FBI has gathered the evidence and maybe conducted the arrests or assisted in them?
7: So we work hand-in-hand with the FBI, so we consider ourselves to be partners. And so every step of the way from the beginning of the investigation to the end of the investigation, we're working together, we're meeting, we're collaborating and discussing those issues throughout the investigation. So it's not where it's just at the end, we meet and and discuss what type of evidence we need, collaborating and partners throughout the entire investigation.
1: And what about injuries, deaths, shootings? I mean, did people come through it pretty much safely, at least on the good guy's side?
7: So on law enforcement, there, there weren't any, any casualties, there weren't any unforeseen incidences, and one of the great things about the investigation and being able to share information with foreign partners and foreign authorities is being able to prevent those violent acts from, from occurring, whether it's kidnappings, murders, or other violent acts, to be able to prevent those throughout the investigation. In total, we prevented about 150 murders from being completed.
1: And some of the techniques are pretty interesting that you use to gather information. It almost sounds like Better Call Saul or something, but you managed to get phones that were secretly sending you the information on those phones, the conversations, but the criminals thought they were just burner phones, correct? How'd that work?
7: Yeah, so so this market existed before the FBI entered this space, and this application actually existed beforehand was just that the Australian Federal Police, the FBI, uh, using a confidential human source, were able to exploit that application and to be able to collect the data, which you know criminals thought was encrypted. In reality, it was being sent to the FBI Monday, Wednesday, and Friday.
1: So in many ways, the criminals indicted and convicted themselves.
7: They actually, in our indictment, uh, they're influencers. They would tout the application They'd say it was super secure. Not even the FBI could crack it. So they were promoting this product to other criminal organizations and from there uh, this was you know organically spread throughout the world.
1: And so there was a wiretapping, so to speak, for lack of a better word. It wasn't wires, but wireless tapping.
7: We worked with a foreign partner that was located in the European Union to obtain the data. So yeah, there no, no no actual wiretapping, but we we worked with the foreign government to obtain the, the data.
1: And during your time overseeing this, was it pretty much a full time Job for you? I mean, there's a lot going yeah. on in Southern California.
7: Yeah, no. Besides the uh, good weather and surfing, yeah, no. We uh, we work 24 hours a day sometimes because you know with all the different foreign partners we're working with and the time changes. So we had a lot of early morning phone calls, really late phone calls, and especially as we got toward uh, Joint Action Day, this was more than a full time job, and you know a lot of travel. And one of the things that um, I think kind of gets missed is that this happened all through COVID. And so you could just imagine this type of operation happening in the height of covid and being able to travel to be able to have, you know, lots of people in a room to view and analyze and share data was by itself a huge undertaking.
1: And do you think you could, pardon the expression, get away with it again that same technique now that this has been so widely covered over the years, a lot of articles have been written about this. Could you get those types of secretly supplied phones into the hands of, say, the cartel people or, you know, the fentanyl people and so on.
7: Yeah. I mean, so this was, you know, the stars aligned. So it's it's unlikely we can replicate it in the same fashion. But, you know, there's a bunch of creative agents, prosecutors that are always kind of working towards, you know, how to combat crime. And one of the goals of this investigation is to show uh, criminal organizations that we weren't afraid to get into this space. And, you know, they should think twice before they pick up another phone that they think is encrypted.
1: And I imagine from those arrests, the prosecutions are still going on. What's the status of the cases? How many have resulted in convictions and what's going on there?
7: Yeah. So obviously, uh, specific cases can't talk about, but there have been prosecutions throughout the world, a lot in Australia and a lot of Europe and other prosecutions. So there's prosecutions in the United States that, that are ongoing and obviously can't talk about those, but there have been prosecutions kind of throughout the world over the last two years.
1: But you have gotten some convictions also.
7: Yeah, uh, especially in Europe, there's been a lot of convictions and some pretty significant sentences that have been handed out.
1: All right. Well, these things take time. Sometimes it's years till you get someone actually permanently behind bars, fair to say.
7: Yeah, no, this you know, prostitutions can take a long period of time.
1: Josh Meller is assistant U.S. attorney for the Southern District of California. Thanks so much for joining me.
7: Thank you, Tom. It was a pleasure.
1: And along with the FBI's Nicholas Chevron and Stephanie Stevens, he's a winner in this year's Service to America medal for safety, security and international affairs. We'll post this interview along with a link to more information at federalnewsnetwork.com federaldrive Federal Drive. Subscribe to the Federal Drive wherever you get your podcasts. Still to come, a dispute over government audit rights in hybrid contracts. This is the Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Welcome back to The Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Network. In cost plus contracts, exactly how much of a contractor's records can the government see and who in particular can see them? Those questions are at the heart of a recent dispute among the Energy Department, HCM Corporation, and the Defense Contract Audit Agency. Haynes Boone Procurement Attorney Dan Ramish joins me to sort it out. Dan, good to have you back.
5: Thanks,
8: Tom.
1: And this HCM contract that it had with the Energy Department was was a hybrid. Parts of it were fixed price and parts of it were cost plus. And so when DOE wanted to see their internal records, it sounds like the company was worried that they would see, that DOE would see their records concerned with the fixed price, which is none of the government's business. Is this what the crux of this is all about?
5: That's right, Tom. HPM had a hybrid contract and the government thought it was entitled to see both costs on the cost side of the house and on the fixed price side of the house. And the board didn't totally respect that line of separation, which they should have under the FAR clauses in question. There was a, a specialty agency clause that could have been the basis for the holding, but the board went further and kind of muddied the water as to what records the government can get.
1: The defense contract audit agency was the adjudicator here. Why was DCAA involved in a civilian contract, or was it with one of the energy labs concerned with nuclear stuff?
5: So sometimes uh, civilian agencies will bring in DCAA to serve as an auditor because of its expertise in that area, even though the contract is with civilian agencies. So in 2019, DOE did that with HBM. HBM here was a contractor providing occupational medical services at uh, Hanford site in Washington.
1: Right. And there's a fourth agency that I didn't bring in, which is the one that decided this the Civilian Board of Contract Appeals. DCAA and DOE were sort of in cahoots. HCM didn't like what they were doing between those two and took it to the uh, Civilian Board of Contract Appeals.
5: That's right. So we actually talked about this over the summer, Tom. There was a question about non monetary claims. So this is a non monetary claim by the contractor. DOE was seeking cost records on the fixed price part of the hybrid contract. There were actually two different audits. One of them was performed by DCAA in 2019. And then the auditor, Cone Resnick, audited their 2020 contract records. And DOE's contracting officer said, hey, I want to see everything that you're providing to the auditors. Uh, and HPM said, no, these are proprietary company records, the records that relate to the fixed price part of the contract. You don't have any business seeing, just as you say. There isn't a right under the contract clauses. And so this resulted in a non-monetary claim submitted to the DOE contracting officer. The contracting officer denied the claim and said that DOE was entitled to the records on the fixed price side as well. At that point, the contractor appealed to the Civilian Board of Contract Appeals.
1: And the records were to be supplied to DOE by the Defense Contract Audit Agency.
5: Well, this was another kind of line of argument here. DOE said that the contractor had to directly provide the records to the agency contracting officer, and HPM said, well, to the extent that DCAA needs to provide or determines that DOE has a need to know some of this information, we're okay with them passing it on, but we don't have an obligation to provide it to DOE.
1: But DOE said we have the need to see everything, so DCAA said okay.
5: Yes. That's not an uncommon stance uh, from the government's auditors, certainly.
1: Sure. Well, dealing with another fellow government agency, they're almost in cahoots. We're speaking with Dan Ramish. He's a procurement attorney at Haynes Boone. So what did the Civilian Board of Contract Appeals actually decide then?
5: So the Civilian Board of Contract Appeals first had to decide whether this was a valid non-monetary claim. So most claims are for money damages under the Contract Disputes Act. And the agency here said well, this is really a monetary claim because based on the denial of access to these fixed price cost records, we're going to remove all unsupported costs from the contractor's indirect costs and provisional billing rates. And at the end of the day, this is about that money and whether we're entitled to recoup a portion of it or deny paying it. And the civilian board said, well, that's not really the case. This deals with a matter of contract performance. If we decide in the contractor's favor, they don't have to provide these records. That's an adequate basis for supporting a non-monetary claim. It's a significant non-monetary consequence of the claim. So the board said, we have jurisdiction over this non-monetary issue. Then they looked at the contract and the government's audit rights under the contract. And there were three different clauses. Two of them are standard clauses that address the government's right to access records. The allowable cost and payment clause, which is for flexibly priced contracts, cost plus contracts and time and materials contracts, and other flexibly priced contracts. And then the audit and records negotiations clause, which provides different audit rights. But the audit rights at issue under that clause related to flexibly priced contracts. And then there was a third clause that's specifically a DEAR, Department of Energy clause, 9752043, 9752043, which the agency said, well, this clause also provides us access to those records. And the contractor disagreed. HPM said the two standard clauses from the far are only applicable to the cost type part of this hybrid contract, not the fixed price contract. When you have a fixed price part of a contract, that's treated totally separately on these hybrid contracts. And there's no audit rights extending to the the fixed price part. And then they said as to the Department of Energy clause that was really intended for environmental and health and safety type records and not just anything under the contract and the board disagreed across the board with the contractor's position they said that the R clause even though it may be sort of intended for environmental health and safety records but the language of the clause gives the government broad rights to access different types of records without those kinds of restrictions so they could have stopped there and said we'll uh, dismiss the appeal for failure to state a claim because this specialty DOE clause provides access to the records the government wants. But instead, the board said, actually, we're not prepared to say that the standard allowable cost and payment clause or the audit records clause don't allow the government access to any records on the fixed price part of the contract.
1: So therefore, the government would have the right to the records under the fixed price part of the contract.
5: That's right. The board said all three of these clauses potentially grant access to the fixed price records. And that's a big problem because there really is a line of demarcation. This is a fundamental aspect of fixed price contracting that the government doesn't have, unless you're talking about a certified cost per pricing data scenario, which it was clear was not the case here. Other than that scenario, the government doesn't have the right to access cost records on fixed price contracts. And a fixed price claim on a hybrid contract is the same thing.
1: What would motivate an experienced contracting officer in the first place to think they can have records on a fixed-price contract in the first place?
5: That's a great question. So HPM had a theory about why DOE wanted these cost records on the fixed-price part. They said that DOE wasn't requesting the costs to verify the costs uh, that they were properly accounted for, but they actually wanted the information – to assist in a new follow-on contract solicitation for the fixed-price services that HPM was providing. So they wanted the cost data to be able to recompete with other contractors.
1: Yeah, that's really on the edge of kosher, though, isn't it?
5: The board looked at it, and, and they they weren't sympathetic to the contractor. But I think most contractors would get pretty up in arms over that, the notion that the government is both overreaching and demanding cost records on a fixed-price contract without an appropriate right of access, and also that they're doing it for this kind of nefarious purpose.
1: Yeah. So did DOE get those records?
5: At the end of the day, the Civilian Board of Contract Appeals did dismiss the appeal. So DOE would have had the ability to get the records, or they could take the remedies they were talking about and recoup some of the costs or deny paying some of the contractors indirect costs.
1: So the lesson for contractors is don't do fixed price work for the Department of Energy thinking they can't go fishing and hunting in your internal records.
5: Well, Tom, I think there's a a good argument to be made that the language about the standard audit and records clauses and the allowable cost and payment clauses wasn't really necessary to the holding. The civilian board could have just kept it to the specialty DOE clause so I think that's the position the contractors will likely take in future disputes. But anytime you know, boards kind of stray from the standard interpretation of FAR clauses, it creates uncertainty and confusion and risk for contractors.
1: Dan Ramish is a procurement attorney at Haynes Boone. Thanks so much. Thanks, Tom. And we'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Subscribe to the Federal Drive wherever you get your podcasts. The Veterans Health Administration, as part of its Reboot Task Force, deploys chief well-being officers to find out what's driving burnout among clinicians. It's using feedback from employees for more flexible schedules and to streamline mandatory training. For more on these efforts, Federal News Network's Jory Heckman spoke with Kavita Reddy. She's the Associate Director of Employee Whole Health at VHA's Office of Patient-Centered Care and Cultural Transformation. But first you hear from Jessica Bongiorni. VHA's Chief of Human Capital Management.
8: That group has been charged with trying to tackle ways to address burnout both for individual employees but then what can we do as an organization to address the drivers of burnout that we have control over that individual employees aren't able to action themselves and so After having lots of conversations with our employees through focus groups and surveys and getting their feedback, we understand where their concerns lie. And so based on that feedback, we have focused on actions that tackle things like job control, workload recognition, and coming from the lens I view things from in human resources, we know that a lot of things in the HR space, tend to impact employee burnout. And so one of the key things being making sure we have enough staff to handle the workload. And so our hiring efforts have been a big impact, but we also see a lot of success this year in reducing turnover rates. So we have seen increased retention this last year, and our Best Places to Work scores reflect that. But I think some of the investments that we've made in trying to tackle large organizational challenges to reduce administrative burden have had some impact. Employees can see that we are investing in trying to take this really seriously. By doing things like finding ways to reduce things like mandatory training, it sounds like it might be a small thing, but employees get really frustrated about having to take mandatory training that takes time away from them. Doing their routine work and doing other things like advancing ways that we can promote scheduling flexibilities for our employees. That's been a big focus this year. So, expanding those flexibilities, especially for our nursing population, is where we focus some efforts. And Dr. Reddy, you may want to speak on uh, some things that your team has been focused on as well.
0: Specifically, when we think about advancing a culture of well being and professional fulfillment, we are looking at drivers of burnout for clinicians. And in order to tackle some of those at the facility level, we have uh, hired chief well-being officers, be close to 30, in the next couple of months that we have within several VHA facilities. And those chief well-being officers are clinicians themselves. They are strategists, leaders, and advocates for the clinicians on the front line. And their goal is to look specifically at what are the drivers of burnout in their day-to-day work. This could be documentation. It could be understanding their team dynamics and workflows. Um, It could be looking at their own professional development and growth and equity in the types of opportunities they receive. And these chief well-being officers are then able to work with the executive leadership team, work with service-level chiefs to try to come up with solutions such as more efficient processes for documenting so that they can have more time in front of their veteran that they're caring for, which is what actually brings us all joy in this work. Similarly, we want to support the mental health and well-being of our employees, and so we are looking at how to strengthen those supports when people are in times of need. From the employee whole health perspective, we also are trying to support people's individual well-being, how they are sleeping, moving, eating, um, having good connection, and avoiding social isolation. All of these things are really important to having thriving employees who can then be more engaged in helping the organization thrive. Just to
7: focus a little bit more on those chief well-being officers, you mentioned that they've been identifying those drivers of burnout, but what does a, a day in the life look like for them? Walk me through a little bit of their responsibilities.
0: Yeah, so they absolutely are developing relationships across their facility, trying to learn from not only the service chiefs, but the frontline employees themselves, what are those quote-unquote pebbles in your shoes? What are those things that are getting in the way of you having fulfillment in the work that you do every day? So this often involves a process called listen, sort, empower. It really sounds just like what it is. They have an opportunity to listen to these employees, help the service chiefs sort through all the feedback looking at what might be feasible to put into play in their service lines, and then really trying to help find the resources the key stakeholders or the partners to be able to accomplish that work. So, for example, we know that there is some software in VA that can help make the documentation process a little bit more efficient. So they help connect people to the right software, to the right informatics, subject matter experts to get that into their documentation. Another example might be that they want to have more leadership development so that they have leaders who are in service of their team, servant leaders. And so they will connect them to the education or the training or even create trainings that will help those leaders grow and be more supportive of a culture that allows for safe conversation and bringing up the things that aren't working.
7: Okay. And to go a little bit deeper in those pain points, those rocks in the shoe, as you put it, you mentioned promoting flexible schedules for those frontline employees. Uh, obviously, healthcare by its very definition is a demanding field. You know, there are sometimes those long hours, those unpredictable schedules. But to the extent that VHA is able to, what is it able to do to make those schedules flexible and uh, accommodating for those frontline employees?
8: We have a number of schedule flexibilities that are consistent with other federal agencies, but in particular for healthcare, we have a flexibility for our registered nurses that's called 72 for 80, in which nurses can work a schedule that is more akin to a lot of private sector organizations where they work three 12-hour shifts. Instead of working a straight 40-hour work schedule of eight-hour days, they work three 12-hour shifts per week, and that counts as a full-time schedule. And that really tends to, from the feedback we've gotten from our employees in improve their experience of burnout because they have more time to spend with their families. And so what we have identified is is also cost savings from doing this and reduction in turnover in the facilities where they've implemented this schedule. And so we are doing additional collection of data and sharing best practices to try to expand the use of this flexibility across the enterprise.
0: I'll add to that too. I mean, what we see when we look at drivers of burnout and the opposite then, what what contributes to an engaged workforce is having autonomy and flexibility, as you said. And the autonomy part comes from being able to think about work-life integration and, and what schedule would work best for me to be able to drive both inside and outside of work. Often there are some myths about whether somebody can be productive or meet the needs of their colleagues or patients that they're taking care of. And what we've seen coming through the pandemic is that people can, in fact, be very productive with flexible schedules. And so we're sharing those best practices across sites, helping leaders understand how to foster that flexibility and autonomy, and really having employees learn more about what flexibilities are available to them as well.
1: Kavita Reddy, Associate Director of Employee Whole Health at VHA's Office of Patient Centered Care and Cultural Transformation. You also heard from Jessica Bongiorni, VHA's Chief of Human Capital Management, speaking with Federal News Network's Jory Heckman. Check out Jory's story at FederalNewsNetwork.com. This is the Federal Drive with Tom Temin. For the latest updates, stay with FederalNewsNetwork.com or follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn. I'm Tom Temin.